a reading from Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw up everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children, for what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees, make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone, and to be holy. Without holiness no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral, or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance right as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought this blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. Thanks. Well, as we begin our time together, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are the God that speaks. And week by week we have the privilege of listening to your word. Please would you now help us to understand it and would you please speak to each one of us powerfully for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, as today is my last official sermon in the parish, feel very kindly allow me to choose any passage to preach on. Now I've been reading through the book of Hebrews in my quiet time, so I felt well, that was a good place to start. But in particular, and, and hopefully for reasons that we will see, I felt drawn to chapter 12. Now, it's been one of my delights over the last four years of seeing people coming into the church family, to hearing the gospel, to being baptised and confirmed, to believing in Jesus and to make journeys in their own life of faith. 
But now as I prepare to leave and, and to move on to what's next, I'm wondering, what will your relationship be like with Jesus in 5, 10, 20 years time? I hope, I pray and I wonder, will you keep on going as a Christian? Will you carry on running the race of faith? One thing I discovered in my first year as a curate here at Bishop Hannington was that, well, we have lots, and I mean lots, of cake. And because of that, in my first year, I somehow managed to put on a whole stone. Now, I'm not complaining. The cake was and is delicious. In fact, I'm really quite missing it at the moment. But one thing I decided to do as an effort to fight the fat was to start jogging. Now, I've never really been much of a runner, although my all-time favourite hero is Eric Liddell of Chariots of Fire fame. But I decided to start doing something called Couch to 5K, which basically introduces you to a bit more running each week until you're able to run five kilometres non-stop. But one of the problems with running is that there's all sorts of things that put you off from doing it. I wonder if you've experienced one of them. That might be physical pain, or it might be the social anxiety about people seeing you out running, or it might just be to do with a lack of confidence, or it might just be, forget the 5k, I'd rather stay at home on the couch with the cake. But while running for our physical health may be a choice for some of us, running the race of faith is not optional. It is required for everyone who wants to have eternal life. So, if you've heard me preach before, I'm sure this will come as no surprise, but I want to ask three questions about this passage in particular, as we think about running the race of faith. How do we do it? What do we need to remember when things get hard? And what's our goal at the end of it all? So let's start with the first of those three questions then. How do we start it? With any race, it's important how you start. You've got to make sure you've got the right attire, the right equipment for the course. And you've got to have the right kind of motivation to get you going in the first place. So what does the Bible say about how to start running the race of faith? Well, firstly, it says to look to the examples of those who have run it before. Have a look at what Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 says. It starts, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Let me pause there just for a moment. In the chapter just before this one, we've seen this amazing list of all these people who have run this race of faith in their lives. Now, chapter 11 describes faith as confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And as we look through that chapter, that list, we see all kind of examples of that often with the most amazing of outcomes, as people trust in God. Here are some of the examples it gives. Firstly, Noah, who ran the race of faith by trusting in God, 
by building the ark even though no one in his generation believed. Or Abraham and Sarah who ran the race of faith by trusting God for a child even when they were beyond childbearing age. Or Moses who ran the race of faith by leading the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. Or Rahab the prostitute who ran the race of faith by welcoming in the Israelite spies into her home even though she faced the possibility of death. The list goes on to include people who were exiled or tortured and martyred, all of whom ran the race of faith. What's amazing about these people is not that they had amazing levels of superhuman faith, but that their faith, their trust, was in the almighty God of the universe. Now, we may feel like we are right at the very beginning of that race of faith. And that's not a bad place to be. But the best way we can start it is by looking at the effect that faith has had on those who have gone before us. In facing incredible hurdles, not because they were better, but purely because their faith was not in themselves, but their faith was in God. Now, the great thing, too, to add to this is actually we have witnesses all around us today in our church. People who have run that race and facing all sorts of things. I've seen this in the church in these last four years. People whose faith in Christ has enabled them to face um, illnesses and unemployment and rejection and, and even breakdown of earthly relationships, too. But also I've seen those same people grow in their faith and in their love of God. And that is a good reminder to all of us who are starting this race. Now, secondly, we are told that we need to get rid of anything that will slow us down. Have a look at the second half of verse 1. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. If we want to persevere in this race, if you want to stay to the end, then it means we will need to let go of certain things if they're going to slow us down. Imagine, I'm standing at the starting line at Hove Park for the park run on a, on a brisk Saturday morning. Now, I do not stand a good chance of completing it in any good time if I'm weighed down by all kind of unnecessary extras, if I've got my takeaway coffee in one hand and some essentials from Waitrose in a bag in the other and perhaps a few items of camping equipment tied to my back just in case I get lost. I'm not only going to look ridiculous, but I'm also going to really struggle to finish that race well. So it is in the race of faith. So what kind of stuff might hinder us in our race? Well, that's going to be different for each one of us. It might be a physical thing like being addicted to our phones or the latest gadgets. It might be relational things like a, a boyfriend or, or a girlfriend. It also perhaps, well, it might be an attitude or a tendency to compare ourselves with others or to judge other people's behaviours. It's going to be different for each one of us. But some of those things aren't bad in and of themselves. I mean, like phones and relationships, after all, they're not bad. 
but they can hinder us in the race. We need to be careful then that they're not slowing us down. But also the writer says that there is the sin that so easily entangles. What does that mean? Well, bear in mind what we've seen in chapter 11. The writer's been talking about these examples of faith. But therefore it seems quite legitimate that this sin here he is talking about is lack of faith or disbelief. Actually, this is at the root of nearly all of those other things that hinder us in this race of faith. So how are we going to overcome that particular sin? Well, we do it by looking to Jesus. Look at verse 2 and 3. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Instead of the five kilometre park run, imagine this race is like the hundred metre sprint. You're crouched in position. Your hands and feet are properly placed. And as you prepare to take off, you look up and there he is, Jesus. He is the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Pioneer because he thought of it. It is, after all, God's idea for us to be saved. We didn't force him to do it. He chose to save us. But he is also the perfecter, the the finisher of our faith as well. He has gone before each one of us. He has prepared the way for us by giving up his body to be killed and in rising again. Doing everything that was necessary for our faith to lead us to where he is. And then reminding us of this. Well, it puts our own race of faith into perspective, doesn't it? As we saw last week over Easter, this Jesus went to the cross. He endured it. He scorned its shame. Why? Because of the joy that was set before him. The joy of sitting down next to his father once it is all done, saying it is finished. But also the joy of having us there with him. Rescued sinners, sons and daughters from all nations, all backgrounds and all personalities. There with him experiencing his joy. Through all of this, he was willing to do what none of those who trust in him will ever have to do. Experience the punishment for their sin. So as you start the race, fix your eyes on this Jesus. Consider everything he faced and remember the outcome. Do that, the writer says, and your race won't be marked with weariness and heartache, but with the hope of heavenly joy. But there will be times for all of us in this race of faith when we face really hard things. So what do we need to remember when things get hard? Question number two. Well, firstly, we need to remember that when God disciplines us, it's actually a sign of his love and not his hatred. Look at verses four to six. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement? that addresses you as a father addresses his son. It says, 
My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. What we see here is the key to enduring through difficult times in our race of faith. When we might be tempted to think that hardship is a sign that God doesn't care. And to make this point, the writer actually appeals to the Old Testament scriptures, in particular to Proverbs chapter 3, where a father is teaching his son where wisdom can be found. But I think first what we need to do is define what we mean by God's discipline. Think of it like this. Someone shares one of your secrets or or shared a secret a long time ago that caused a lot of hurt. But you're unaware that you're actually harbouring quite a lot of unforgiveness towards that person. Well, God's discipline for you in that situation would be to get you to see that something needs to change. How? Well, he might make that clear to you as you read the Bible, where it's talking about unforgiveness, or as you listen to someone else speak. Now, while that may be a very painful realisation for you, it is nevertheless done out of God's love for you and not his hatred. The problem is, whenever we experience that kind of discipline, we don't suddenly think, wow, God is showing his love to me in this. But often quite the opposite. But we might also experience God's discipline in more general ways. For example, during this pandemic, we could easily see how God may be using it to discipline his children, to discipline the church. Whether that's because some may have made idols out of busyness or success or allowing perhaps a a commercialised type of Christianity to take over, whatever it is. Whatever the discipline we face in this race of faith, we must remember that God's reason for doing it isn't hatred, it is love. Specifically, it is the love that the Father has for his Son. Now, in one sense, this discipline is a badge of honour, isn't it? Not a badge of shame. If you are being disciplined by God, if you feel that he is challenging you and moulding you, but that process is painful, then do not give up. Because he's only doing that because he loves you and he accepts you as his son. But secondly, the writer also makes the case from the other perspective. Because actually no discipline at all is not a good sign. Have a look at verse 7 and 8. He says, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. What he is saying here is that if in your race of faith you have never experienced any discipline, any correction, any challenge to your behaviour or thinking and taken it on board, well then something is wrong. 
If your conscience is never activated by sin in your life, then this passage warns you to ask whether you've become a son or daughter in the first place at all. One of the characteristics of this race of faith is that as we continue with it, God will make us aware of things that we do or don't do that he wants to change. When we start running off the path, he will tell us. Now, when I was early on in my race of faith, I remember thinking to myself that I wish I was like some of those older saints, those older believers in the church who have maybe been Christians for many years. You know the ones, the ones that I thought that no longer sin, the ones whose conscience is never triggered by the things they do. But actually God has helped me to realise that that wasn't a right understanding of what it means to run the race. The disciplining doesn't stop, rather it changes until we are perfect and that will only happen one day by his grace once we have crossed that finish line but no discipline at all is not a good sign because it's either a sign that well we're not listening or that we are not true sons and daughters at all if that is the case and if that is you then please don't let that go unchecked Please speak to someone. Please speak to a a Christian friend that you know and trust. Give them a phone call and ask for them to pray with you today. But thirdly, you see, this is important because ultimately discipline is for our good. Have a look at verses 9 to 11. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of Spirit and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Here's the key to all of this in verse 10 then. God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. God's desire in disciplining us, his sons and daughters, is nothing less than to make us to be more like him, to be holy as he is holy, to be pure as he is pure. Can you imagine how different our approach to discipline can be if we truly believed that God is doing it to make us more like him? And that is the most wonderful thing that any of us could ever ask for, isn't it? To be like him. Because when we look at Jesus' life, we see the exact kind of person that we long to be like. Completely loving, completely compassionate, gentle, powerful, good, And even going to the cross, even suffering with unshakable joy. That is what any of his followers want to be like. And the great news is that through this discipline, that is God's desire for us too. But where is all of this leading us? The third question, what's our goal at the end of it all? 
Well, we started off the race with our eyes fixed on Jesus and the other examples who have gone before us, proving that it can be done. We know that any discipline or difficulties we face are not a sign that God is against us, but rather that God is for us and that he loves us. But as we look now to the finish line, what's our goal? And the first thing the writer says, it's in living out our peace. Have a look at the first bit of verse 14. He says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone. How can we be people of peace with the people around us? With the people who perhaps wind us up? Well, when this was written nearly 2,000 years ago, the church had plenty of enemies. Plenty of people who didn't wish them peace. Groups of people, in fact, who were committed to its destruction. Just as there are today and in many places around the world. Yet, Part of the goal of their race of faith was to be peaceable towards such people. And it's the same for us too. How can we do this then? How can we show this peace to others? Well, perhaps if we spent more time with our eyes fixed on our pioneer and perfecter of our faith, Jesus, instead of on others' faults, Perhaps if we realise that through God's discipline that actually we don't have anything to boast about. We're only God's children by his grace. And this is how we will demonstrate to the world that the race we are running is very different to the race that other people are running too. We are not running a race to try and keep up with others. We are not running a race to try and excel above everyone else. Or even a race where we might think if somehow we are just good enough, then we'll get the prize anyway. That is not the race that Jesus has prepared for us. He has finished the race for us. He has won our prize for us. And when we honestly believe that, at that point we will have the resources to really live out that peace that comes from knowing God as our Father. And we will be able to share it to those around us. But along with living in peace, we're also called to be holy. Look at the second part of verse 14. He says, and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Holiness doesn't mean snobbery. It doesn't mean looking down on others for things that they are or aren't doing. In fact, for a Christian, it actually means for them to be true to whom God has made them to be. Now, we don't achieve holiness on our own. But actually, we receive it because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has given us this holiness, this new title of righteousness. And because that's who he now says we are, We have the responsibility to live it out. However, often our concern is is less for our own holiness and more for the holiness of other people, how they are behaving, the things that they are struggling with. Of course, we must be concerned with how our brothers and sisters are living, just like God would be unloving if he didn't care about those things in our life. 
But ultimately, God is only going to hold us responsible for how we've used our holiness, not theirs. But do you see what the reward is? If without holiness, no one will see the Lord, then that means with holiness, we will see the Lord. If we endure, if we hold on to God's love, even when we experience discipline, then we can have every confidence that we will see God. And I don't know about you, but I really, really want that. And actually, that's a really good deterrent against sin as well, isn't it? To choose the right thing with the joy of knowing that I will see Jesus one day face to face at the end of this race of faith. And as we think about what our goal is, one final thing we need to bear in mind is that for some of us, we may need to change before it's too late. Have a look at the the sobering words in verses 15 and 16. The writer says, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. What does the writer mean by falling short of the grace of God? Well, we all know that we all fall short of God's standard, but that's not what he means. This means to fail to live out the implications of God's grace to each one of us. To fail to take hold of what he has given us through Jesus. To demonstrate that we are living more for this world than we are for God. And the writer, to explain that, gives us the example of Esau from Genesis 25. Who was even willing to sacrifice a tremendous blessing from his father for the sake of lunch. It sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But we can all too easily do the same. We can ignore living in God's way when temptation dangles something in front of our face. It really comes down to who you are listening to. Is it the sound of Jesus at the finish line cheering you on to follow the course he has set for you? Or to stop and listen to the rumbling of your belly. The sobering warning is that if we give up on this race, there might come a time when it's too late to get back on it. Of course, none of us want that, but the warning is there so that we would take it seriously. So don't lose sight of the goal. One of the blessings about where we are moving to is that for us, the Gage family, we will still be very near the three churches. And that means I look forward to hearing many stories of brothers and sisters at at Bishop Hannington, at Holy Cross and at Goldstone running this race of faith with their eyes fixed on Jesus and being to others around them witnesses of his sufficient grace. I look forward to hearing stories of how people have grown and endured through times of perhaps painful discipline. And I look forward to stories of you living this out.
whether I am your curate or not, that doesn't matter. Instead, let all of us run this race of faith with our eyes and our hearts fixed on Jesus. Amen.